Hello everyone, Alan Mishra here from Vitality Explorers. Please sign up at vitalityexplorers.com for free information via text about how to enhance your physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. This week we're going to start off as we always do with a quote, and here it is. Quote, do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. That's, of course, from Nelson Mandela. So do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. So this week, we're going to switch it up a little on Vitality Explorer News in this podcast. We're going to briefly talk about uh, would you rather be a billionaire or win a Nobel Prize? But we're going to focus mainly on vitamin D. And this is in the context of a new study that was published this week. So let's jump into the would you rather be a billionaire or win a Nobel Prize? Now, this is salient because this week was the first time in a long time the Mega Millions lottery was over a billion dollars if you took it out over time. Uh, Interestingly, that's one of the important concepts of being a billionaire or not being a billionaire. You have to realize that I think the the total money, if you took it out over 29 years or something like that, was about $1.28 billion. Obviously, a lot of money. If you took the lump sum payment, it was somewhere around $800 million. And that's when it starts to get interesting, right? So I think the person who won the billion dollars or billion dollar lottery, at least for now, decided to stay anonymous. And as this was going on last week, we asked this question, would you rather be a multi-billionaire or maybe just a billionaire? Would you rather be a multi-billionaire or win a Nobel Prize? And I thought this question was interesting because if you are a billionaire, you would have the resources to make massive changes in, in our world for good. You could start foundations and charitable organizations. You could do a lot of different things with that money for good. You could obviously do a lot of good for your own family, your own community. Um, But it would be interesting to see what people would do if they had that amount of money. Now, a Nobel Prize, on the other other hand, has typically gone to somebody who who discovers like a scientific truth, like, um, you know, something related to physics, something related to physiology or chemistry or has made massive progress towards world peace. So we asked this question up on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site, and the, and the findings were kind of interesting. More people were uh, interested, or two-thirds to one-third picked being a multi-billionaire versus a Nobel Prize winner. So I found that quite fascinating. I think more people are, are comfortable or would maybe want to be a billionaire because you could also do some good and have a lot of maybe fun on the side. Um, I'm going to just give you what I thought or what I would vote for, and that is to win a Nobel Prize, because I think that would last way more than the money if it was a real scientific truth or if you had made genuine progress towards world peace. So there were some comments up on the Substack site. You can always check that out. We're going to continue to run these would you rather questions in the context of vitality. Uh, Either way, being a billionaire or winning a Nobel Prize would probably at least transiently enhance your vitality. All right, now let's move on to something that I'm really fascinated about and is really, I believe, important to our overall health and vitality, and that is vitamin D. Now, a large new study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this month. There was a lot of commentary. There was a lot of lay press about how vitamin D supplementation at 2,000 units per day uh, versus a placebo over an average of five years did not, in this study, decrease the risk of sustaining a fracture, all right? It's Leboff, L-E-B-O-F-F, 
at all and New England Journal of Medicine. Now, before diving into that and explaining why some of these headlines that have been circulating all over the internet, such as vitamin D won't help your bones, or study finds another condition that vitamin D pills don't help, I think we should, we should really learn about vitamin D. Now, this is gonna be a little bit you know, interesting in terms of what people wanna learn or don't wanna learn, but I think we need to know our history of vitamin D, some of the important published peer-reviewed data about vitamin D, and then dive back into this study that was um, just published. So but I, I refer people to uh, something that was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and I think this is, it was a, quote, a historical and up-to-date perspective. Now, it was published a few years ago, but uh, you can check that out. <clears throat> it's by uh, uh, Dr. Michael Holick. And I want to read a little bit from this because I think people really don't understand the historical uh, perspectives underpinning vitamin D. And it's one of the most important things that I think we can learn about because there's a lot of mythology around that. Um, now, when you look back at the history of vitamin D, it was noted, like in, and I'm going to quote from the paper here, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there's evidence that growth retardation and bony deformities associated with rickets in more than 80% of children living in the East Coast of the United States and cities throughout Europe. And in 1921, a couple of guys named Hess and Unger reported that exposing children to sunlight was an effective treatment for rickets. This was quickly followed by the observation that exposure to various foods um, also helped. And this led to the addition of vitamin D to, to milk uh, and, and a higher uh, recommendation for people to be outside in terms of prevent, preventing uh, uh, rickets. Now, in the, in the 1940s in the United States, milk was fortified, but also things like bread and soda, uh, beer, custard, and even hot dogs. That's an interesting idea. Um, and they thought that this was important enough to consider it for something, a treatment called for, for rheumatoid arthritis. And this is where it, we have to be importantly take a pause. And when I read this article, it was this, this is where the mythology about uh, toxicity and severe toxicity and the commonplace of uh, high toxicity comes from. So back in the 40s, they, they gave rheumatoid arthritis uh, patients massive doses. We're talking two to three hundred thousand units of vitamin D per day. All right. Now this, this level, two to three hundred thousand, not two thousand, not twenty thousand, two to three hundred thousand resulted in things called hypercalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, which is increased calcium and increased phosphorus in your, in your blood, uh, kidney stones, and soft tissue calcification. So they stopped that. But remember, they were giving a massive doses, but this was embedded into the psyche of everybody that vitamin D toxicity results in kidney stones and soft tissue calcifications. So over the years, people kept, kept thinking about this and they thought that there was a lot of toxicity associated with it. And then there was a lot of, there's also a lot of mythology about what's, what uh, constitutes um, deficiency. All right, so the official, the most official definitions of, of vitamin D deficiency, again, there's some numbers here, but you can look them up again on the Substack site or online, but 20 nanograms per milliliter has typically been known as the lower cutoff value for vitamin D deficiency. Again, that was based on <clears throat> century-old data saying that 20, <clears throat> that, that level, 20 nanograms per milliliter, 
would be protective against rickets. Okay, that's only against rickets. All right, a 20, 21st century published data suggests that there may be a need for a higher level. And the endocrine society still sticks to that level. So if you see an endocrinologist or you talk to them, they will quote these numbers and say that less than 20 nanograms per milliliter is deficient, insufficiency is 21 to 30 nanograms, and um, you know normal levels are above 30. All right, and they also, very, there's a lot of variability about what's a toxic level. The endocrine society says 150 upper limits of normal in a variety of different labs I've seen are around 80 milligrams, excuse me, 80 nanograms per milliliter. All right, lots of, lots of numbers in there. But the important part about this is deficiency historically was defined by kids who got rickets and toxicity was defined by patients who were receiving two to 300,000 units of vitamin D. Now, I've been really evaluating this in my patients for many years. I, there's a lot of orthopedic uh, and sports medicine literature surrounding tendons and ligaments and bones and increased levels of uh, injuries in elite uh, collegiate and professional athletes when they have low vitamin D. Uh, that can be stress fractures, that can be uh, hamstring injuries, that can just be overall injuries, but a lot of, especially indoor athletes like volleyball and basketball players now get their vitamin D levels checked upon entry into college if they're elite athletes. So I've been trying to translate this into some con a new concept. What I'm arguing for, and this is gonna, we're gonna get back to that uh, paper in a few minutes, is that there should be a new category reported out as suboptimal. And that I would suggest, and I welcome comments from anybody, that the suboptimal level would be below 40. And we do not know what optimal is. And I think optimal needs to be defined by what you are trying to either prevent and or treat. But I do, I do try for myself and, and my patients, always disclaimer, always check with your doctor first. This is not medical advice, but for myself, I'll just say, I think peop, I, I'd like to be above 40 and maybe closer to 50 nanograms per milliliter for a variety of reasons. Now, we're not gonna go into everything here, and I think maybe we gotta uh, pivot at this point and go back and talk a little bit about that paper. Um, and that paper was done, again, doing clinical research of any kind is hard. But here was the conclusion of this paper that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Vitamin D3 supplementation did not result in a significantly lower risk of fractures compared to placebo among generally healthy midlife and older adults who were not selected for vitamin D deficiency, low bone mass, or osteoporosis. Now, they did follow these people for five years. They stated that they had a pretty high compliance rate, but I think it's crucial for us to unpack this study and then let everybody who's listening to this or who reads it on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site draw their own conclusion. All right, as a teaser, what I wanna do is share with you what my, <clears throat> what I would have added to the conclusions of the paper. Um, I would have said, this study has a skewed ethnic demographic compared to the 2020 United States data. Uh, the data also was conducted in patients with an average age of 67.1 years. We can only make conclusions based on the population we studied. Our results may not apply to younger patients or certain ethnic groups. So here's the specifics of the study. Again, this is a pretty detailed dive into vitamin D and I know it might be awesome for some people listening to this and it might be a little too much for other people, but I'm a little bit of a vitamin D nerd. So 
we will go on here. The specifics of the study, again, it was a huge number of patients, 25,871. They were followed for 5.3 years, again, with the average age of 67.1. About 50.6 were women, so 50, about 50-50. And the ethnic breakdown was quite important. It was 20.2% black, 4% Hispanic, and um, only 1.5% Asian or Pacific Islander and 0.9% American Indian or Alaska Native. Now, this is different than the United States ethnic background or ethnic data. Uh, again, the references are up on the Substack site, but um, according to 2020 data, blacks in the United States represent 12.6, Hispanics 18.6, Asians 5.9, and American Indian or Alaska Native 0.7. So the study that they're quoting had a higher percentage of blacks and a lower percentage of Hispanics or Asian. Um, importantly, I think also when you add those together, the, the study that was published had 26.6% people who were basically identified of color in one ethnic group or not, another. And that is lower than the 37.8% uh, in the 2020 US demographic data. So the paper therefore contains a uh, significantly less percentage of people who are of color and this could have skewed the results. They also, importantly, this is crucial. Again, this is when you're trying to do clinical research and you're trying to understand the conclusions of a paper. Uh, unfortunately, most people do not do their homework like I'm trying to do for everybody here because the, the paper only reported baseline vitamin D levels in 65.5% of the patients. So uh, essentially two thirds of the patients they had baseline vitamin D levels, but a third they had no idea, all right? Then they reported adherence to their randomized uh, protocol of vitamin D versus placebo at 87.3% at two years and 85.4% at five years. Now this of course is excellent, right? But what they didn't tell you or they didn't highlight is the paper reported objective vitamin D blood levels on only 23.2% of the patients and at two years only 5.3%, okay? So when, when people wanna draw conclusions about something, they need objective, not subjective data. So they really only had objective data on vitamin D levels and at most 5.3% at two years. I think this is a significant flaw in the study. I think it's impossible to make meaningful conclusions with such low levels of vitamin D follow-up rates. They tried um, and I understand it's difficult to design and execute a study and I, I wanna congratulate them on you know, trying to do their best. I do, however, in my opinion, believe that their conclusions were far too broad compared to the study within. And I think there's still several questions that need to be answered. And again, would the fracture rates be different if the population studied, uh, started supplementation in their 40s versus their 60s and then continue for 20 years? They can't claim that they did that because they didn't. Uh, number, that's number one. Number two is, would uh, it'd be different if they only included patients with or people, participants with known vitamin D deficiency. And, and number three, would the fracture rates be different if only Hispanic Asians uh, and or black populations were studied? And I, I think they simply did not have a, um, a, uh, enough of these groups to draw any meaningful conclusions and it was skewed in, in a way that does not reflect the demographics of the United States, at least in 2020. Um, most importantly, they did not confirm the vitamin D levels in patients after supplementation, except in a very small percentage of them at two years. So again, these are my personal opinions about this particular article. I tried to provide some context of how vitamin D has been historically um, 
you know, evaluated and, and where some of the some of the data comes. Now, status quo in medicine dies very, very slowly. So there's a lot of people who are studying vitamin D. There's a lot of people who <clears throat> may or may not believe that a higher level is meaningful. Uh, disclaimer here, I have no financial connections to any vitamin D supplementation companies. Uh, I do, however, believe that uh, based on my personal experience and my experience um, that vitamin D levels above 40 are better than below 30 uh, for at least the orthopedic conditions that I see in myself and in my patients. So I welcome comments about my commentary about this particular paper. I um, Also, uh, a second disclaimer is that I am a reviewer for several uh, elite orthopedic and sports medicine journals, and I tried to apply what I've learned as a reviewer in the in, in, to this um, paper about vitamin D. I certainly could have made mistakes, and I welcome to have a vigorous debate about whether or not this is meaningful. And I thank you for listening. All right, the final thing I would su suggest people check out on the Substack site is something that we're going to continue to work on in Vitality Explorers is the concept of exercise and using 21 minutes of exercise to decrease the risk of uh, depression. And you can check out that uh, Vitality Explorer Substack site for a short one minute video that goes over that data again. So thank you for listening. Uh, again, I am I got a total vitamin D nerd. Thank you for listening to uh, a little bit of a deeper dive into vitamin D. And I hope until next time that you will continue to dare to be vital.